Welcome to the Fundraising Talent Podcast. I'm Kyla Daw, and I'm glad you decided to join us on today's episode of the show that is shaping how the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent. Rather than advice from experts, our listeners want to hear the insights and ideas from those who, just like them, are on the front lines every day, building meaningful relationships that translate into meaningful support for causes that they and their donors care about. Every week, we invite our guests to have a real conversation about what it means to be a fundraising professional. We're after a greater understanding of what it means to be one of the sector's critically important yet least understood roles, while giving honest answers to our profession's most difficult questions. Thank you for joining us in this episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. Here's your host, author, fundraiser, and master trainer, Jason Lewis. Hi, podcast listeners. This is Jason Lewis, and I am your host for the Fundraising Talent Podcast. I want to thank you for joining us today for the show that is shaping the way that the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent. Before I introduce today's guest, I do want to thank our sponsor, QBAC. QBAC is a next-generation advancement solution that reimagines alumni engagement to increase major planned and principal giving. QBAC acts as a force multiplier for fundraisers, enabling them to focus on what they do best, developing deep relationships with prospects and cultivating them into lifelong donors. QBAC automates the qualification process beyond simple scoring to ensure that your fundraisers have the best prospects. QBAC also uncovers actionable insights about current and future prospects to help fundraisers develop personalized cultivation strategies. Start closing bigger gifts in less time by going to www.qback.com to schedule a free demo. Also, how about being our next host for the Responsive Fundraising Roadshow? I'm looking forward to two things this summer, getting back to the ballpark with my kids and getting the Responsive Fundraising Roadshow back on the calendar. If your organization would like to be a host location, let's schedule a time to chat. The Responsive Fundraising Roadshow provides six hours of the best fundraising training out there based on Responsive's four sense-making tools. Hosting Responsive's Roadshow is not like hosting a major conference that requires months of planning and all types of resources. All we need you to do is provide us with a safe learning environment for 25 adult professionals in your community who want to understand how highly effective fundraising really works. There is no cost to your organization, and we will reimburse you for all related expenses. If your organization would like to host the Responsive Fundraising Roadshow in your community, reach out and let's have a conversation today. Hi, Kevin. I am delighted to have you on the Fundraising Talent Podcast today. You and I have been uh, going back and forth trying to get this on the schedule. I think we've got lots of mutual friends. I know in the um, in the in the Salvation Army world, we probably have more mutual friends than we probably know about. And maybe after this broadcast, we'll figure out if we have a few more friends. Um, but uh, I have been very eager to get you on here, and we have finally managed to um, coordinate our schedules. I think I messed something up last week. So I appreciate you being flexible with me, but we've got you on here, um, Kevin. And uh, first thing, let's just ask you to introduce yourself to our listeners. Yes. uh, My name is Kevin Feldman and I am director of development with the Salvation Army in the Chicago Metro region. Uh, And I am actually based in Northwest Indiana, which is part of the the Chicago Metro region. And I've been involved in fundraising now, uh, leading development programs for 33 years. So, Kevin, have you been raising money at the Salvation Army for 33 years? Is that, have you, have you, 
uh, or have you been raising money elsewhere as well? I mean, that's a remarkable uh, yeah. time period, but has it been all at the, at the army? Uh, hardly. No, no. I, uh, like, like, uh, uh, like many I've, I've, uh, I've lived through many turnovers, uh, in development, uh, uh, development director jobs and development positions. And, uh, it's kind of, uh, common in the industry, as you know. Yes, yes, yes. So, but, 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 I'm a big fan. I read, you know, I read, I, when I first got into this work, I was working with a lot of, uh, nonprofit. I was working for parachurch organizations and I remember going, and you may have been at some of these conferences as well, Kevin. Mm -hmm. Um, one of the first conferences I went to was a, was a Christian stewardship association conference. They were doing them mostly, they were based out of Indianapolis. The organization sort of gone defunct and merged with the, uh, management association. Um, but at the time, that organization had formed a very strong affinity and friendship with the with the army, and um, and there was a book that had come out. I'm sure the book is probably within arm's reach of where you're seated. Um, just about how how extraordinary of an organization that the army has been, and the impact that it makes, sort of what it does, both as a as a mission, as an organization, you know, delivering on what it's supposed to do, but also organizationally speaking. Um, I remember very early in my career uh, reading that particular book. Uh, you follow? You, you're familiar with the book that I'm uh, talking uh, about? I am not, Jason. I, I'm sorry to say, but the Salvation Army does have a very unique uh, history. 160 years old, approximately, yes. uh, founded by General William Booth uh, and uh, in England. And uh, it, its beginnings were were very interesting and unique. And today. It is uh, a very uh, uh, wonderful organization to serve uh, and very unique in many ways, and uh, it operates in very unique ways as well, uh, uh, different from from many other organizations. Yeah, yeah, and I have worked with a number of fundraisers who work in the Army space. Mm -hmm. So, Kevin, we invite our guests to come on the podcast with a big idea or bold opinion. Um, we don't ask you necessarily to disclose what that big idea or bold opinion is with me. It Generally, it makes for a much more natural conversation when you just come in with an idea or an opinion and we just unravel it. So what mm -hmm. do you got for us today? The, the nonprofit space uh, often, often treats its major donors uh, with high esteem. Uh, given much attention, uh, the majority of a development person's time, a gift officer's time is spent uh, with uh, so-called major donors uh, based on the, the donor's giving history. And I'm here to say that, that uh, all donors should be treated like major donors. And I have, uh, I have some very good reasons for that opinion. Yeah, so I have to uh, I have to imagine that I probably agree with you, but um, I try to I try to withhold my uh, opportunities to hop up on my own soapbox for at least ten or fifteen minutes. So how about we get you to unpack that? I I, I have a sure. I have a guess where you're going. Yep. Um, and uh, tell tell us where you're going with that. Sure, sure. Uh, I I I have a, a strange hobby, Jason. I collect stories of common everyday individuals, unknown individuals uh, um, that, that uh, were very uh, quiet about their wealth, very quiet about their 
uh, earnings and investings and savings, uh, lived very humbly, and uh, and when pass, passing away, uh, left hundreds of thousands, m- millions and millions of dollars uh, to their favorite charities. Um, and uh, and these people were were not on the radar of any charities uh, un- until they passed away, and it's sad. It's sad that that these folks had a passion uh, for these organizations, these causes. Uh, nobody noticed, nobody appreciated them uh, until after after they left this earth, you know. And uh, and uh, one such person, which I which I uh, wrote about on LinkedIn many years ago. Uh, was a gentleman named Albert Lexi. Uh, you may be familiar with that story. Uh, Albert Albert was uh, had a shoe shine stand on the streets of downtown Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, uh, for many years, and uh, and Albert had a hobby of of playing the stock market. So what he decided what he decided to do many years many years before his death was he decided that he would take the tips. Uh, he would live off the 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 earnings of his shoe shine business, uh, what he charged for his shoe shines, and he would take the tips and he would invest them in the stock market. Well, Albert Lexi died in 2018, and in 2018, to everyone's surprise, uh, Albert Lexi uh, had uh, bequest made a bequest. Uh, of two hundred and two thousand dollars to to the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center's Children's Hospital, and uh, and it was all the tips he collected and invested in the stock market over the years, um, and, and that's and, and I've got literally hundreds of stories like that. Some of them much bigger gifts, and equally as amazing. You know, th- there's a lot of people. Um... Kevin, there's a lot of people sort of in our fundraising space right now talking about sort of this underlying, I've said it, I've said it a number of times. I've described it this way. There seems to be some underlying angst. Um, and it, it, this angst even tends to be uh, similar as, as I think about the people I've talked to, it tends to be people who've perhaps been in the field for perhaps 10, 15, 20 years. I've been in the space for, for 20 plus years. You've been in a little longer. Um, there's some angst about sort of where fundraising sort of finds itself. And it tends to, some of this angst tends to be expressed in ways that you've sort of just kicked off our conversation with. And I kind of wonder, Kevin, if the challenge is not so much the difference between the big, the big donors and the little donors and whether it's actually between the generous and the non-generous. And, and and what I mean by that is, is I, I, I've been reading, uh, as I've been researching my forthcoming book, I've been reading the generosity science studies that have been, that went on at Notre Dame. I think they started in 2014. They basically came to the conclusion that only about a third to maybe a half of the population of any slice of our population really has the underlying inclination to be generous. And so I wonder, Kevin, if part of maybe in between the lines of what you're saying is, is that we should be focusing on people who are generous, less inclined to focus on the size of the gift. And should we just be trying to discern whether you're a generous person or not? Does that make sense? Oh, it does. And, and, and Jason, you've been, you've been uh, where I'm about to go uh, right now, where, where you have, you have, 
you work for a director of development or a nonprofit CEO who sees that, uh, uh, yeah, yeah, you know, when Bill Gates first came on the scene, right? You know, I mean, I, I remember those days, right? When Bill yeah, Gates came sure. on the scene, you know, and, 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 uh, every everybody saying, you know, we really need to to write to Bill Gates and ask him for for money. You know, he's he's some of the 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 new the new rich, uh, the new wealthy right. that are out there, right? And there, there's that tendency to do that, and 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 the the CEO wrongfully or the development director, depending on depending on the experience they have, wrongfully thinks that that's a good use of the gift officer's time is to go after the people that are best known for being wealthy and the best known for giving away their money. What they don't realize is that, is that there are thousands and thousands of nonprofits and, and their leaders who think that way and board members who think that way. So, you're, you're Bill Gates, uh, right, uh, and uh, and all of your other wealthy uh, people, um, old and new, right, are getting are getting hit up for donations, uh, tens of hundreds of times more than 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 the average the average person. So your likelihood of getting a donation from them, particularly a major gift. Uh, is much smaller. So where are you going to spend your time, right? Where, where, where you're more likely to get a gift, and and actually with your average donor, with your with your mid level, even your low level donor, um, you're you're far more likely to get a gift with a volunteer who works for you, serves your organization. You're more likely to get a gift than than somebody who has a lot of money, and even though that gift might be smaller. Collectively, if you look at the numbers of those smaller donors, right, you're talking about a lot of money that's on the table uh, that's for the taking of, of nonprofit organizations if they treat those donors uh, in, a more, in a more professional, personal, and appreciative manner. So are you... So I, I, like I shared with you, I think before before we hit the record button, I, I, I first half of my fundraising career was all in the faith based space, parachurch yep. organizations, and I was in the discussions about sort of the whether or not we should show you know favor and uh, preference to the larger donors and so forth and so forth. And there's plenty of arguments out there, and cer- certainly when we're talking about fundraising in a biblical context, we're not generally going to say that you should be showing favor towards the super affluent wealthy sort of people. And, you know, we want to acknowledge the widow's might and so forth and so forth. But I, I-, I think, I think when we focus on generosity is, and, and it's not something that you can put in them. You can't, you know, there's, there's no database that j- j- like, like, whereas we can sort of well screen people and find out how much wealth they have. We can't necessarily go into a database and, and find predictive tools necessarily that tell us how generously inclined they are, regardless of what their level of wealth is. But is there, is part of the flaw about fundraising practices my critique tends to be that the fundraising practices that we most engage in don't allow us to discern who those most generous of people are so if you're just nest, if you're saying okay let's let's disregard the size of the checks and let's focus on the generous 
of the not the generous versus the non-generous, but you're relying almost exclusively, say, for example, on direct mail, you never have a way to ultimately make that discernment to, to, to your advantage or even to theirs, to have that meaningful conversation because you're literally relying on such a shallow form of communication. You follow what I'm saying? I, I follow what you're saying 110%, uh, Jason. <laughs> y- yes, I, I, and and you're absolutely right. I mean, that that's, that's the challenge. I mean, a, as development people, we're always operating under the tyranny of the urgent. There's always... There's always deadlines for direct mail. There's there's uh, golf outings and events that you have deadlines for. There, right. There's and the small development shops are 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 stretched even even further. Um, let, let me tell you though of of just a, 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 a an experience that I had uh, twenty years ago. It, it, it's uh, twenty years ago. I was working for one of these large international parachurch organizations and uh, and and literally this organization this organization had uh, 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 at the time about 200,000 donors in its database i mean it was it was it was a huge organization many of them many of them small but the organization in its marketing both television uh, uh, broadcast marketing and its direct mail pushed and pushed and pushed uh, uh, monthly donations of, of 20 to $40 per donor, right? And, and, and I was directing foundation, uh, corporate and foundation relations at the time. And I was trying to look for a, 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 a kind of a, a, an inroads to finding out who's connected in our database with corporations and foundations that we, that we need to get to know. And and so I convinced management that we need to invest in, and you mentioned it, wealth screening, uh, uh, a wealth screening program. And so we sh- I shopped around, and 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 we 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 found something that we felt would work, and um, and so we literally uh, uh, took our database and ran our, our active donors and ran it through wealth screening. And myself and a couple of other people uh, that worked for me, we went we went through this data, and we uncovered hundreds, literally hundreds of people, verifiably, who were trustees of foundations that we'd been trying to get money from, that were executives with corporations that we were trying to get money from. That that had been giving to this nonprofit ministry for many years at the low level. Why were they giving at the at this ministry at a low level? Because that's all they were ever asked to give, and 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 they and they were were they were, they were acquired from this twenty to forty dollar a month ask, and there's where they stayed because. The ministry made the mistake of of uh, uh, of uh, having having this this way of judging who's a major donor based on the amount of their gift, right? So so th- at the time, anybody who made a gift of five hundred dollars, a single gift of five hundred dollars or more, would be put in a major gift category, would be called upon. By a major gift officer and followed up with. Uh, if you made twenty or forty dollar a month gifts, you would just stay in the direct mail stream 
uh, forever and ever until you until you re, uh, made a gift that size and and reached that threshold. Um, and so there, those people stayed for a long, long time. And so uh, I took it at the next step further after after doing that research and creating a report. I, I, I uh, presented a proposal uh, to the senior management of this uh, organization and said, look, it, we need to invest in some more automated process that is screening people as they're giving, as they're making these donations, whether they're new donors or old donors or whatever, and they're screen- screening them and identifying them as uh, 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 potential people connected with foundations, corporations, or connected in a way where it says that these people have have the investments and the income to make larger gifts so that rather than depending on them reaching a $500 threshold before they're being contacted by a gift officer, um, we're being proactive and we're identifying them as uh, a a prospect for uh, a major gift. And we're giving that information then to a gift officer that's in their region of the country who then follows up with them to, 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 to cultivate that relationship and eventually ask them to make a gift that's at or over that $500 threshold so that they, they now are officially major donors, right? So, uh, and, and, and it was amazing. And it, and it really revolutionized fundraising for that particular organization. Uh, so much so that within two years, within two years, they went from having 14 major gift officers around the country to 40 major gift officers around the country because they had so many more prospects to work with. And those prospects were being cultivated and more larger gifts were, were coming in. Okay. So, okay. So, but is, is part of the, um, so go back to your 20 to $40 gift. Right. Okay. Um, I work with a lot of institutions that, um, uh, private schools, I work with a lot of private schools. Um, and a lot of the private schools that I work with are absolutely convinced that they're, you know, the, the, the typical family that they're serving, um, is stretched. They're financially stretched and, you know, they're, they're, you know, being able to pay tuitions requiring that they take, they take second mortgages out on their homes and da, 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 da. Basically I have to convince these clients, for example, that their that their constituents, their donors or their families in this case are not broke. Um, and, and I think that's one of the things that, the nonprofit sector, perhaps because we're so oriented towards the downtrodden, the marginalized, people who are truly broke, we oftentimes sort of project this assumption onto our donors, which when you think back on the story you just told, your organization was asking for $20 and $40 gifts. And in many cases, for in some cases, those were the gifts that those people could accurately give. But be, was there an underlying assumption that $20 to $40 was what people could give and that they had to in some way or another be convinced that no these people are far more influential far more affluent and far more capable of giving at much more significant levels and the systems that we have in place now aren't going to necessarily tell you that and the way that we go about our work isn't going to tell you that um i mean i think there's organizations that are just plagued around this country and around the globe 
plagued with programs of the sort that your group, you know, the group that they initially had, they're just darn convinced because all they see is these 20 to $40 gifts that that's accurately representative of what their people are, are capable of. And as you guys found out very quickly, it wasn't accurate at all. Yeah, I think there's I think there's two assumptions. One assumption is is that is that um, generous people uh, will will give more if, if even if they're asked for twenty or forty dollars, they'll give yeah. more. And, and if they like what you what you do, uh, yeah. the the other assumption is 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 that a successful a success and this is uh, this is. Uh, a, a, an assumption really on the management side of things is, is, is that um, uh, the, uh, the, the fundraising, uh, uh, when it comes to fundraising, acquiring new donors, the more donors you acquire, the more successful you are, right? Uh, I think a lot of nonprofits get on this 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 uh, uh, roller coaster of acquisition. Oh, we have to acquire new. Oh, look at all the donors we acquired, and they ignore. And man, I've seen it. I know you've seen it. They they ignore how many donors are lapsing, uh, how many donors are leaving the or uh, giving to the organization altogether, and they figure if they can just acquire keep acquiring a lot of donors it really doesn't matter uh how many donors lapse and frankly this is where this international ministry was uh uh uh, 20 years ago in their thinking they acquired so many donors on a daily basis so many new donors internationally on a daily basis they weren't too concerned about lapsing donors and they had they already had a lot of significant uh, 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 major donors as well, and, and so they were. They, they thought they were sitting pretty comfortably, uh, but even though they were sitting pretty comfortably, the push was always the pressure was always on development to raise more money, raise more money, raise more money, and acquire more donors. Right, and uh, so so the, those tend to be, from my experience, two very uh, dangerous assumptions that I think nonprofits make um, about their donors. Yeah, okay, right, exactly. And so so you, you see these reports that come out every year, just like I do. We see the same reports, and it's this renewal, you know, it's the renewal rates, right? Right. And, and every time I see it, but then like to, for me to go back to what I was saying about the Notre Dame study about generosity – if we assume that 50% of that, so, so that organization, for example, you were talking about, had 200,000 names in it. If you assume that that was, if we draw the assumption that that, that, that list, for example, was acquired in overly aggressive um, acquisition sort of tech methods with very low expectations of what those don't, you know, you accumulated probably a lot of people who were not inclined to renew and were perhaps not very generous people. And so if you look at that list and you just said, okay, 50% of these people aren't going to renew anyway, because they just don't fit the profile, the type of people who are going to sort of, they're not generous and they're not going to, they're not, and they don't want to really do this. They're just sort of responding to sort of that warm glow 
momentary sense of changing the world or whatever. Um, and they weren't necessarily probably the people that popped up on your well screening data either, you know, when you started using that particular tool. And I just wonder if we're sort of feeding this information into the minds of fundraising professionals. You and I have been around a while, and so we sort of can use our critical thinking cap here and look at this. But I think about, you know, the fundraiser who's been around for just to say a couple of months or a couple of years, who's looking at this acquisition program, perhaps the same way you and I did very early in our career. And this acquisition program is oftentimes sold on the notion that it's supposed to solve the renewal, the lapsed donor problem, when in fact, neither of those really solve the problems at all. I mean, isn't that basically what we're saying? Uh, it is. It is. And, and you know, just to use a, a, a recent example, though, and, and, and you, had, you had mentioned it, you know, that, that uh, and here we go again, people making assumptions that, uh, they, you know, they look at the well screening data and they look at, and they look at the database and they assume that, that, oh, a lot of these donors aren't gener- generous donors. Well, you, you know, I, I uh, just a month ago, um, I'm at my desk and I, I have kind of a rule around here where I, I tell people, I say, you know, if any donor that walks in a check, and we do have some that literally insist on driving here and walking in a, walking in a check to us, I, I, no matter what size, come and get me if I'm here and I want to thank them and, and, and find out, find out why they give. Right. Yeah. And so, and so, uh, and, and this story is not unusual to the Salvation Army, right? The Salvation Army get, has stories. Again, I could, I could tell you many stories like this one, right. but, but, yes. but, uh, uh, one of the employees here, uh, came up to me and handed me a check for a thousand dollars and said, this lady's at the door. And, uh, and I told her to hold on cause you'd like to, you'd like to thank her. So I go down and I meet this lady and this lady is, uh, is, uh, I think in her seventies, um, she wasn't in the best of health. Uh, she was, she was dressed very casually and, and, uh, and, uh, you, you know, I thanked her for a generous gift and, and I asked her, like I asked all the donors, I said, I, I said, what, what prompted you to make this, this gift today? You know, and, and, and she, she said, she said, Kevin, um, uh, you have, your organization has helped me as recently as a month ago. You know, she goes, I've been using your food pantry, you know, with, uh, with through raising our children, my, my, my husband, uh, my, uh, husband who passed away recently was a very hard worker and, uh, and you know, he, he supported us. But there were many times when he was laid off where we needed assistance and we came to the Salvation Army to get assistance. And, and we did this as recently as a month ago. Um, my, my husband, uh, uh, unfortunately, uh, caught the COVID-19 virus. Uh, he was in the, he was really in good health for his age, so much so that he recently just before he passed away and, you know, he bought a pickup truck, uh, a good used pickup truck that he'd been wanting. And, uh, and so he suddenly got sick with COVID-19 passed away. And, um, I, I, I sold our four bedroom house, uh, in Munster, Indiana, moved to Hammond, Indiana to a one bedroom, uh, one bedroom apartment, uh, where I can live. My kids are all grown up now and it's much cheaper for me to live. 
Um, but but uh, um, I, I, this is my opportunity to give back. I wanted to give. I wanted to give you this thousand dollars because I had to sell my husband's pickup truck, and and this is some money from the sale of of the pickup truck, right? So so how many stories are like that out there? We're just people, it goes beyond generosity. I mean, if your organization is doing great work and I don't, and even if it's a humanitarian organization like the Salvation Army, or it's, it's an organization, uh, um, you, you know, that, that is a pet rescue where you, where you bought your, your, your favorite dog or cat, you know, where you, we picked up your favorite dog or cat. And, and that was a, that was a loving animal, a cherished, a cherished member of the family for many years, whatever that may be, how many people are, are, are so appreciative of what you do with your organization, uh, that, 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 that they're, they're wanting to show their appreciation monetarily like that. They want to give back, you know, and I, I dare say, based on my experience too, that there's lots of those people. There's lots of those people that, that have to express themselves, that, that you were there when they needed them. You gave them something very meaningful, uh, like a, a loving a loving dog that 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 your family your family enjoyed a relationship with for twelve or thirteen years, and and now it's time for me to to show my appreciation to you. Okay, so again, we're talking about statistics. We're talking about assumptions that are made. One of the things that I have figured so. I get the benefit. This, this conversation will probably air. We're creeping up on 300 of these conversations. And Kevin, if I have figured out anything, we talk, we're often talking about renewal rates, laps, lapsed rates. We're talking about donor attrition. We're, we're inevitably the conversation gets to this conversation of professional turnover. And what I'm, what I'm so, if, if you want to hear what sort of gets me angst up, if you want to hear it's it's this idea that um, that this in some way has to do with the donor or it has something to do with the fundraiser. And what I know it all has to do with is we've got to be creating more environments. It's all about the management and the board and the environment we create for these people to basically experience on either side of the gift exactly what you just described. And I am absolutely convinced that if we will create more scenario, I don't care how big the gift is. I don't really care. I don't care if it's small, big, somewhere in the middle, um, you know, millions or hundreds or, or whatever, but we don't have enough fundraisers and we don't have enough donors having these sort of serendipitous collisions, as you just basically described to sort of experience the, the both generosity and gratitude on both sides. She was expressing gratitude and generosity in one motion. And you essentially were doing the same thing. You were both experiencing both sides of what it means to exchange something generously um, because you were both experiencing gratitude at the same time. I mean, isn't that essential? I'm, I'm a baseball guy. I'm wearing a baseball cap. Mm-hmm. We're going to be going to a baseball game tonight. Who wants to go to a who wants to go to a baseball game when you're in a lousy ballpark, right? doesn't matter if you've got Babe, Babe Ruth home run hitters on the field and, and you've got a great team. If you're sitting in a lousy ballpark, 
who wants to be there? And I think that's the critique that we've got to start owning up to as nonprofit organizations, that we're just not creating beautiful places for donors and fundraisers to, to exchange these gifts like you just described. Well, I, I, you're right. And, and uh, I think that environment goes beyond a, a, a nice ballpark or a, a nice building, a nice building sure. to, to gather in. Um, I think it's the attitude and the mindset that, that uh, if you treat all donors like major donors, right, um, yeah. then, then you're, going to, you're going to hit more home runs, right, uh, to use a baseball terminology, because, yeah. because there's a lot of people like this lady that I, I mentioned. There's a lot of people who equally appreciate what an organization might have done for them and their families uh, who, who just don't take the initiative or maybe they're disabled and can't get out to really thank you. Right. You know, uh, like, like they want to. Um, and, uh, or, or maybe there's just somebody who uh, like Albert Lexi, uh, uh, the Pittsburgh shoe shiner who, who really likes what you do. Right. And it is 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 secretly just kind of saving for that right moment. He doesn't need to be acknowledged, you know, uh, all the time. Uh, if he were acknowledged, you know, if he were, if he were shown appreciation just for the small gifts that he was given, maybe maybe he might might have left more, or maybe he might have, he would have appreciated you your organization and its work more. But but the fact is, there's 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 people out there that we'll never know about, we'll never know about uh, that that are generous, that give sacrificially, uh, those that are wealthy and are very private about it, that never hit the wealth screening radar, that ne- that, that you'll never know about, and the only way the only way to be able to to capture gifts from those people is, is to adopt that mindset, to treat all donors like major donors. And, and there's not one method of doing that. It's all about what your systems are, what your systems are in your nonprofit organization. Uh, Some are very dependent on direct mail. Uh, Some have major gift officers, some don't. Um, But, but with whatever time you have, the more you can pick up the telephone and just thank a donor for their gift, whether it's $20, $40, or $1,000, um, that's a huge step in that direction. And I'll tell you, there are very few nonprofits that do that. There's very few nonprofits that, that will just go down the, 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 the day's gifts that have come in the door and say, okay, here's Here's a list. Everybody just call these donors and just thank them for, for their gift, you know, and uh, pray with them, you, you know, ask them why they, why they support the nonprofit. You don't have to spend a lot of time on the phone with them, but that, that telephone call, that personal touch will make a huge difference and make them feel appreciated and, and make them feel, make them feel like their gift means more to you than maybe they even thought while making it. Is some of this, okay. So 
I, at the very beginning of my career, you, you've got to remember when this came out. So you remember this was, this was right around, this was right around um, the turn of the century, right before, probably around the time of September 11th and everything sort of was happening in the late night. I, I bet the first book. So the guy wrote the book, um, I can't think of his name, but he wrote the, the millionaire mind and the millionaire next door. And those were books that guys like you and I were basically told to read early in our fundraising careers because it sort of gave us this perspective that the donor who's wearing the, you know, the flashy clothes and the, you know, the expensive wristwatch and driving up in the, you know, fancy car isn't necessarily the millionaire, whereas the person who is the millionaire is showing up with, you know, a Timex watch and a much less recently manufactured car and perhaps doesn't live in the most extraordinary home. And I kind of wonder if some of us sort of early in our career, when we're reading something like the millionaire next door sort of missed the, maybe, maybe some of us interpreted what was supposed to be learned from that. Some of us learned sort of an exploitive, how do we find out if they are in fact rich and others of us, and I think this is true for myself, and it sounds like it's true for you, mm-hmm. rather than sort of seeing this as an exploitive, how do we find out if this person's truly rich, we saw this as an exploratory sort of learning lesson that you're going to have to explore relationships, and you don't necessarily have to rely on these predictive tools to necessarily answer all these questions. You just treat you, you just basically have high expectations for yourself similarly have a high expectations for your donors. And a lot of times over time, you're, these things emerge in conversation. I mean, that's, that, that's, that's always been the most enlightening, most enjoyable part of my work is when, is when learning, learning about the extraordinary opportunity that a donor represents, not because some well, well screening data told me, but because I went out and sort of pursued it like an explorer with all sincerity and genuineness, desiring to build a meaningful relationship. Um, and it very serendipitously sort of came back um, and benefited my employer. Does that make sense? Yeah. Oh, it does. It, it, it does. And, and, uh, and I remember those, I remember those days, those, those, those days were also the days when, when we were being, we were being uh, uh, told and it was being drummed into our heads that there was this great wealth transfer that was going that was going that was going to happen and we've got to get on board with this and and people are going to make you know there's there's a, a planned gift legacy gift opportunities that are just waiting to happen right you know and uh, and and uh, you know everybody was quick to jump on board of that which is which is good because there really is and 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 was then a, a great wealth transfer the problem is, is that is that the relationships with donors didn't change. The people, the, the, the people transferring, the people transferring wealth weren't always the, the, the rich people, right? There were people like Albert Lexi. There were people like a lot of other, a lot of other folks who, who early in their careers started investing or make, making plan to make, you know, make a planned gift, Right. Uh, uh, people that never married or, or couples who never had children who, who made a planned gift to their favorite nonprofit or nonprofits, right? And, and, and so throughout their careers, throughout their lives, more and more money go into that, uh, go into that fund. And, uh, and when they pass away, 
the, these these folks who who lived their lives uh, humbly, uh, and maybe he was a, maybe he or she was a blue collar worker. She might have been a teacher or something like that. Uh, have amassed a fortune. I've got examples of, of of public school teachers. I mean, there's a lot of them. Public school teachers who who donate millions and millions of dollars in it, 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 with a planned gift to their favorite charities. Um, and they were public school teachers, you know, and, uh, but, but the, the thing is with that great wealth transfer, you know, um, nobody ever thought, or I shouldn't say nobody, but most of us at that time never thought, well, these, these could very well be, uh, people that are middle income, you know, middle income people, blue collar workers, you know, teachers, you know, we were thinking again, like, like we thought when we were young, uh, these are rich people, you know, uh, uh, so the wealth transfer is going to be something that the rich do, not just, not just the average um, mom and pop, right? Is, 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 um, okay. So this, this will be the last question. We, we lose our listeners at about 45 minutes. So, but I, but I got to get your thoughts on this. You, you've been doing this long enough. You've been doing this a little longer than I have. So, um, is basically the, is one of the things that we're the most guilty of in not, I oftentimes say Kevin here on the podcast that the fundraising professions and it's still in its messy adolescence. So we just Mm -hmm. haven't, we haven't collectively grown up yet. Then is part of the problem because a lot of what you think about what we've centered on here for the last 40 minutes is that we've sort of majored on the technical aspects of this, the technical aspects that are oftentimes designed to sort of exploit what is known rather than sort of lean into the relational and more exploratory aspects of this that are not known, that they're not certain, but those are also the things that are life-giving to both the person on your side and the person on the, you know, the giving and receiving side of these things. Um, are we guilty of sort of making this too technical of work? Uh, I, I, I think so. I mean, I, I mean, I think, I, I think we want, we want to make our jobs easier, right? We, we yeah, want to, right. we want to reach more people faster and, and have more and, and get more gifts faster. And so the more mechanized you can make it, the more automated you can make it, um, the better is the thinking, right? And, yes. and, and, and I think, but I think there's validity to that thinking, but, but that's why, that's why development shops need to be uh, larger, right? Uh, The one person development shop can't be interpersonal and relational and be fully mechanized all at the same time. You know, uh, um, you, 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 you really have to have uh, relationships take time. So you have to have uh, 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 people who have time to make the phone calls, to write the letters, uh, and go out and meet people. And, and you also have to have uh, the, the staff who can, who can uh, manage databases and, uh, and, and handle direct mail and, and do this kind of thing and that kind of thing. For a small nonprofit, uh, 
It may only take two people, but the thing is, most nonprofits only have one fundraising person. You know what I mean? Uh, so, I, I, uh, I, I think that's that's where we that's where we are today for the most part. And uh, and you're right. I like the term you use that we haven't quite grown up. You know, we're we're still kind of uh, in our infancy. You know, with with uh, fundraising, and I hope we don't always stay there. I would like to grow up before I die. Right. You know, yeah. um, well, that's why that's why I enjoy these conversations with people who have been around a little bit longer than I have, um, because, um, like I said earlier, I think there's angst in the space. Um, and I think um, I think there's been some turning moment. You know, if you think about the way that fundraising has played out, especially over the last two decades with the starting with September 11th and then with the recession and now with COVID-19, um, you talk about three very unpredictable events that kind of just thrown us all up, you know, tossed us all around and really even challenged some of this um, some of this technical predictive sort of stuff that we think makes our job easier. In those sorts of times, those were the times where you really needed to count on high, you know, high context relationships, the ability to engage even in simple ways like you and I are doing today. Mm-hmm. Um, Kevin, I've got to, uh, we've got to wrap up, but if okay. somebody has listened to our conversation today and they're like, I want to reach out to that guy, Kevin, and start a conversation, how would you suggest that they do that? I think the best way is to, to just email me at the Salvation Army, uh, Kevin, K-E-V-I-N dot Feldman, F-E-L-D-M-A-N, at U-S-C, U-S-C dot SalvationArmy.org. Kevin, it has certainly been a pleasure. You are always welcome back. Thank you for being my guest today. Well, thank you, Jason. It's been a pleasure being on. Have you read the book that nonprofit leaders and fundraising professionals alike are calling a must read? In this pocket manifesto for today's fundraising professional, Jason deconstructs why many of us find ourselves working for organizations where we cannot accomplish our goals. These same organizations are notorious for rapid turnover and high donor attrition. To avoid this all too familiar path, Jason offers direction from those who want to be recognized and admired for their work. The war for fundraising talent, challenges are ingrained beliefs and assumptions about how effective fundraising really works, and it questions the prevailing wisdom hiring decisions and donor behavior. Published by Gatekeepers Press, The War for Fundraising Talent is now available on Amazon and other major retailers. We want to thank you for listening to today's episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show and hope you will come back for next week's interview, where we will discuss with those on the front line who are defining what it means to be a fundraising professional. If you'd like to be a guest on the Fundraising Talent Podcast, visit our Facebook page or email Jason at jason at lewisfundraising.com. In your email, be sure to tell us about where you work and why you believe you would be a great addition to the upcoming lineup. Thank you again for joining us today, and we look forward to you being a part of the continuing conversation as we shape how the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent.